All yours, Damien. Well, morning, everyone. A real privilege to uh, gather together in the name of the Lord and uh, welcome to my bedroom. And I'm stood here in my slippers, uh, but uh, none of that affects the power of the word. So I'm just really excited to uh, to share that with you and really grateful for the invitation. Um, I'm in John's Gospel today, uh, John chapter 3, uh, and I was just um, seeking God as to what it was that I should be sharing with you. And I just sense that um, uh, the, the word perspective came to my heart. And uh, I feel that God wants to put a lot of things that are going on in our lives today. He just wants to help put some of those things in a right perspective for us. So uh, if you've got a Bible, John chapter 3, um, the scene is um, comes in between two encounters uh, that Jesus Christ has. And one of those encounters is with Nicodemus. And then the other encounter, which comes a little bit later on, is with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And what we know about Nicodemus is that he was looked up to uh, because of his, uh, his high moral standards. Um, and then you've got the Samaritan woman who was looked down upon uh, because of her, her moral failings. Uh, she was the, the woman who would come to the well at the middle of the day in order to avoid all the other women, because we presume that uh, you know, they, they, were look, they looked down on her, they frowned upon her and her lifestyle. So in between those two encounters that Jesus has, um, John, the author of the gospel, he suddenly takes us into a, a story um, about John the Baptist. And I'm sat there reading my Bible thinking, why, John, do you, uh, do you stick a story of John the Baptist in the middle of these two great encounters that Jesus has? And one of the common things about Nicodemus and the, the woman at the well is that both of them, we know, were gaining their identity from their actions. And then we get dropped into a guy, John the Baptist, who has learned how not to take his identity from his actions. So let me get straight into the, uh, the, into the scripture. Uh, John chapter 3, verses 20 to, uh, 22 to 30. That's what we're going to be reading. Um, it says this. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, who is he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness? Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete and he must increase, but I must decrease. So we're taken out into the, uh, the Judean countryside. We've got Jesus and we've got John the Baptist, who are 
both baptizing people. And while all this is happening, we get into a discussion and the discussion is all about ceremonial washing. Uh, you can imagine John's disciples uh, stood together and having a, a conversation with John the Baptist. You know, we thought we were creating a new kingdom here, John. And But more and more people are leaving us and our group and they're moving over to join Jesus's group. So come on, help us to understand what's the difference between Jesus's baptism? What's the difference between your baptism? Why, why are people leaving us? And that's the kind of tension, I think, that's going on here in the story. And we get to the point where we're supposed to ask, well, what kind of answer is John the Baptist going to give? How is he going to respond in a situation where his followers are moving over to follow Jesus Christ? It begs the question, I think, how would you and I respond in that kind of situation? What if people start to move from your church to another church? What if people prefer another small group leader to the one that you're trying to lead? What about when you've led someone to faith, taught them the scriptures, when you've modeled a life of prayer, when you've invested in them, and they turn around one day and they say, well, I don't need you anymore. You're no longer my spiritual hero. I've got somebody else that I can move on to and, uh, 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 and learn from now. I mean, it's not difficult to imagine those kinds of situations. They happen in all of our lives, right? But what about at work when someone else is more popular than you are? When their work seems more successful or more appreciated? I wonder if, uh, like me, you feel that you're losing something in those moments. You see, back in our story, and the spotlight is shifting away from John the Baptist, and it's starting to shine on Jesus Christ. Now, for us, reading the Bible, we kind of stand on the outside and we go, well, yeah, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Jesus gets the spotlight. But John, he's there. He's living in the moment. And his friends, they, they love him. He's their teacher. They've got empathy for him. And so, you know, they get a bit envious of Jesus' popularity. Uh, it says in verse 26, all are going to him. You know, his followers, John's followers, they, they don't just say all people are going to him. They say, all, oh, everyone, John, we're going to have no one left if we don't do something. Um, I'm a parent, like I said, of three boys. As they were growing up, I remember that, that sense of purpose, that sense of value that I get when they come to me and they'd say things like, you know, oh, I love you, daddy, or, you know, I need your help, daddy. Um, it was great, great to be needed, great to be appreciated. Um, well, they're all teenagers now. Uh, and as teenagers, they're seeking their own independence. And the last thing they want to admit is loving daddy or needing daddy in any way. So, that situation, that presents me with a bit of a challenge. Their desire to be independent can, for me, feel like rejection. Uh, my voice is no longer the authoritative voice in their life. Uh, they have their own voice now, and they no longer listen to me and drink in my words like they used to. There's moments when it feels like I've lost something, you know, and... How do I respond? I want to demand to be listened to sometimes. I want to involve myself in every decision they make just so that I can feel useful, so that I can feel part of their life. 
Why? Because I want to feel useful and needed again. And those kind of situations, they, they reveal some kind of emptiness that's in my heart. I, I got three points for us today, uh, like all good Bible preachers. Um, they're brief points, but uh, they're this. They are, we make our own glory. Um, then I want to look at how Jesus actually provides us with lasting glory, with real glory. And then I want to finish by looking at how that lasting glory, that glory that Jesus Christ provides for you and me, provides in our lives today a sense of perspective. So let's move on. We make our own glory. When John's followers came to him, they presumed he was worried about losing the attention of the crowd. But look at what John says in verse 29. You know, instead of finding a man who's worried about losing the intention of the crowd. They find John the Baptist feeling full, feeling satisfied. He says, this great joy of mine is now complete. I mean, where does that sense of security come from? Where does that stability in ministry come from? As people, we, we are, as humans, we, we're naturally empty of glory. Now, I know you and I may not use that language and we may not walk around accusing people of being glory empty people but what i mean by glory is that each of us has a hole in our heart we're each desperately trying to fill it with something you know give me significance uh, give me honor give me importance give me a sense of worth in a sense that's what i was looking to my my boys for give me that sense of value some of us shine a spotlight on our achievements in order to to gain that sense of value we say hey you know look at what i've done uh others maybe you switch on facebook and you start counting how many likes you've got uh you know and it's look how liked i am i don't know what it is for you but i know what it is for me in where i go to when i'm seeking to have that emptiness filled and all of that works fine as long as you're part of the crowd. But what happens when you're, you're cast out, when you're, you're made to feel like an outsider? Where do you go for your, your glory then? I mean, we provoke, we envy one another, we, we make other people look small so that we can feel big. Uh, we don't change, we just criticize the world enough to convince ourselves that we are a little bit better than it or than them or than that group. When our hearts are empty of glory, we, we start to envy one another. I compare myself to you. And because you're a little bit more beautiful than I am, I want to be like you. Why does that happen? Because your beauty makes me feel like I'm less than I should be. So back on those resound calls when all the guys would be on from the different churches across Asia, and then Mark would click onto that resound call with his, you know, six foot long beard. And I'd be, uh, be feeling a little bit less. I'd be feeling a little bit inadequate. All the rest of us guys have got, you know, this kind of scale, this kind of size. And John uh, and Mark comes on with, with his long beard. That was all right until he shaved it off. And then he went from looking like 10 years older than me to looking 10 years younger than me. And I still feel a sense of uh, inadequacy. All because I, I need to feel something 
in my heart. I need to feel my value from somewhere, my importance. Um, what about when you, you get a brand new car, you know, in that short period of time where it just feels great. Then one day you stop at the traffic lights and somebody draws alongside in a bigger and better car and you don't feel so great anymore. Why does that kind of stuff happen? Because we're all seeking to get our glory from somewhere. Sometimes by comparing, sometimes by provoking, by envying, by criticizing. And look what Paul says in uh, Galatians. He tells us to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Why? What's the point? Keep in step with the Spirit so that you do not become conceited. That word conceited there actually means so that you do not become full of self-made glory. And when our heart is desperately seeking that self-made glory, we inevitably, according to Paul, end up provoking and envying each other. Now, we don't see that in John the Baptist in this moment. So where's that stability? Where's that security coming from? Because I want some of that as well. John, he says in verse 27, he says, a person cannot receive one thing. I think that gives us a, a clue into the heart of John the Baptist. John knows the followers he received were there because of God. He knows the reason why people are leaving John and going to Jesus is because of God. In other words, his, it's not connected to his ability, to his fame, to his glory, to his attraction. He's, he's disconnected himself from those things in such a way that he can just say, a person cannot receive anything unless it's of God. Nothing can be taken away from me unless it's of God. John is he's secure in who's in charge. He goes on in, in verse 29, and this is where I move to my second point. He goes on to say the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friends of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So who's the bride? Well, we're the bride. Who's the bridegroom? That's Jesus Christ. And John sees himself as the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, this is my purpose, says John, and I'm happy with it. You know, he must increase. I must decrease. I know my place. It's the only way, I think, to stop the conceit, to defeat that sense of insecurity as we decrease our desire for self-made glory. So we, realize, we release ourselves. We give ourselves the freedom to just shine the spotlight back onto Jesus Christ. You've got Nicodemus, the encounter with Jesus prior to this. You've got the Samaritan woman who had her encounter with Jesus after this story, both of them gaining their identity from the act from their actions, from what they do and the way they live. Yet the writer takes us to this story of John the Baptist, a man who, instead of going to the crowd for significance, 
and approval, it goes to the bridegroom. I mean, why fill your heart with self-made glory when you can share in the glory of Jesus Christ? Isn't that what we've just been singing about? Jesus, who emptied himself of glory so that he could come to earth and live as one of us. Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God something he should chase after. Jesus, who wasn't compare himself to his father or secretly longing to be better than him. Jesus, who gave up all his rights as the son of God, so that we who have no rights would have the same rights, the same glory as him. Jesus, who took the shame that you and I deserve, so that you and I could receive the honour that he deserves. Isn't that the, the great exchange? Isn't that the gospel that we proclaim? Our, our families, our work, our ministries, they were never meant to provide lasting glory because we can never guarantee that we'll always be an insider. We'll always be part of that in-group. Like Jesus, we might suddenly find ourselves on the outside. The crowds left him. His closest friends denied him. Imagine the pain that you and I will experience in those moments if we're looking to the crowds to provide us what only Jesus Christ was meant to provide. I want to go back. I want to think about that discussion that arose uh, out in the countryside between John's disciples and the Jew. It's no coincidence that that conversation was all about purification. It was all about how to cleanse yourself from sin. John's response was to reference the bridegroom. What do we know about the bridegroom? The bridegroom is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He never stops sanctifying his bride, cleansing her and washing her so that she can be presented to him without spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless in his sight. Um, I've done that. Uh, done a lot of weddings in my time in Japan and I get to stand at the front and I have the bridegroom stood in front of me often facing me at the beginning of the ceremony and we're all waiting for the bride to enter and you know that no matter what the bride <laughs> looks like on an ordinary day she has spent weeks and months planning what she's going to look like on that day all the blemishes have been covered over, the dress fits perfectly, and the doors open at the back, and in she walks. Do you know, out of all the weddings I've ever done, I've never seen a bridegroom yet turn around in that moment and look at his bridegroom, his bride, and feel disappointment. I've never seen it yet. I've seen the opposite. I've seen every bridegroom turn around and get emotional. I've seen every bridegroom turn around and shed a tear or gasp or just go, wow, or, you know, takes one step towards his 
bride and he grabs her by the hand and he gives her a kiss on the cheek and he's so glad to have her stood next to him. You know, that's you and I. Jesus, the bridegroom, looks at you and I, the bride, like that. And we're supposed to drink this in deep. We're supposed to not just know this in our heads. We're supposed to taste it and know that it's good in our hearts. It was in John. It had to be. He knew he was more than just a voice in the desert. He was one pointing to the only person capable of permanently eradicating shame. The one who was capable of looking at us, Jesus Christ, with that sense of adoration and love and connection that a bridegroom looks at his bride. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world, who replaces it with his own righteousness. You know, as believers, we bear that righteousness. And that righteousness, we, we talk about it, but that righteousness means that we're now fully pleasing to God. We were alienated, but now we're fully accepted. But look what Paul says. He takes it a step further. He says that we're not, God not only justifies his chosen people, God glorifies his chosen people. We're the bride who deserves nothing, who comes empty-handed to her own wedding, but who gains lasting and eternal significance as a result of her union with the bridegroom. You, you have to love the way John writes his gospel. I love the way that he gives us a story and in between it, he, uh, he just sprinkles real solid theology. Uh, verse, verses 31 to 33, he comes along and he says, he who comes from above is above all. So this is John now writing. He's given us the story of John the Baptist, but now the author of John's gospel is giving us giving us some theology, giving us something we can hold on to and understand. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, yet he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Whew. The gospel writer, he doesn't want you to just gain a bit of knowledge about God. He wants you to know God. What's shaping John the Baptist's heart? Who's he trusting in? Where's his security? Where's his identity? Where's he going? It's in Jesus Christ, the one who comes from above and is above all things. Whew. I know I need that perspective in my life. 
I need it as I'm dealing with my boys. I need it as I'm dealing with the church. I need it as I'm dealing in my marriage. Imagine, um, imagine you're in a helicopter and you're, you're flying over a major highway and the highway is, is blocked with traffic on one side and yet on the other side, it's all empty. With no cars on one side of the road, I mean, you, you're up there in your helicopter and you're, and you're thinking, well, why don't some of these cars just overtake, you know, release some of the pressure, get the traffic moving again. The next minute a car drives onto the other side, the empty side of the road and attempts to begin to overtake, but quickly has to pull back, withdraw, pull back in when a car is coming in the opposite direction. And you're still up in your helicopter and you're going, oh, if only, if only I could communicate with these cars, with these drivers. And you say to yourself, then I could tell them when it is and when it isn't safe to overtake. You see, from the helicopter, you see the whole road. You get the whole picture. But from inside the car, a person can only see a small section of the road. I mean, isn't that? The same, he is above, we are below, he's in the helicopter, we're on the road, he gets the full picture, we get a small picture. But verse 31, the gospel writer says, Jesus is he who comes from above. In other words, Jesus is he who's in the helicopter. It's, it's Jesus who's saying, I can see the whole picture and I'm longing to save you with the knowledge I have. about verse 33 and set your seal you know the writer wants us to receive jesus's words don't just get a nice story and get to know the characters in the story but receive jesus's words and set your seal to it allow the spirit to remind you that god's perspective is the only perspective that really matters Wow, I forget that. I don't know about you, but my sight is in the car so often it stems no more than the, the window screen in front of me. I need those moments to get with God and get in prayer and just get a sense of perspective on life. To set your seal on Jesus is to say, here's my life. Lord, I hand it over. I'm giving to you what was yours all along. And I'm trusting your perspective on things. I mean, isn't that where John the Baptist was? Everyone was moving over to Jesus' team. But John told his disciples, he said, Woof. You're forgetting. I'm from below. Jesus is from above. He must increase. And I must. I'm from below. Jesus is from above. 
he must increase and I must decrease. There's a sense when, you know, I, I seek union, I seek intimacy with God. I love it when I feel him close. But there's a sense when sometimes that leads me to bring Jesus down to my size, leads me to have him next to me as my equal. And that's when life gets difficult. That's when the perspective on things gets messed up. I'm from below. Jesus is from above. He must increase and I must decrease. Because as I do that, I'm released to just shine the spotlight back on him. It means I don't need to go to my family to get from them, go to my work to get from it, to buy certain things in order to feel good or grow a long beard in order to feel adequate. And I'm released then to just give. I'm released then to let God be God. Everyone was moving over to Jesus's team, but John told his disciples, you're forgetting. I'm from above, Jesus, sorry, I'm from below. Jesus is from above. He must increase and I must decrease. I just wanna read those words again. They're up on the screen, 31 to 33. I'm just going to allow a bit of space just for you to absorb them and not just read them, but take them in, make them personal for you. And then I'm going to just lead us in some prayer. It says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. That God is true. I just want to lead us in prayer, if that's okay. And I'm going to hand back to Mark. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, just help us to bind ourselves to your Son to set your seal upon him, to set our seal upon him. We recognize that sometimes we just, we enjoy your blessings, but without surrendering to your lordship, we get our perspectives mixed up sometimes. I just ask that you help us to increase our capacity to sit under your will or to rest under your will to follow even when it's costly and not to chase after those things that we don't need to fill our hearts with. 
ask the Lord as we read your word that you'll help help it to dwell in us richly to cut through to the marrow to provide sustenance for our soul that we may set our seal to it that we may hold on to it as firm as true as solid as unchanging just like you are I pray Lord for any Lord gathered with us Lord today who are struggling with a a particular situation, Lord. Lord, any who feel that they are losing out, I ask, Lord, that through your spirit, you just confirm in them their identity, Lord, what was accomplished for them on the cross, Lord, where they stand with you, Lord, that they've been gifted your righteousness, Lord, that they are acceptable in your sight, Lord, that you look upon them just as the bridegroom looks upon his bride upon a wedding day, Lord. Father, I ask that you fill them to the full with a sense of who they are in you, who they are in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that that fullness will just enable them to, to let go to allow the spotlight to shine on others or to allow the spotlight to shine back on you. Father, we want to be your servants. We want to be your people that bring glory to your name, Lord, not glory to our own name. We want that sense of peace, stability and security, that freedom that releases us as you've promised in your word. I just ask these things, Lord, and I ask your blessing upon this church and I thank you for it. And I thank you for the work they do in your name. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.